Do your friends believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do you? How can you be sure one way or the other? Anchored by Truth is here to help. In the book of Acts, Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 Mediterranean islands, and the prominent scholars, such as J.B. Lightfoot, have concluded that Luke got their locations, relative positions, and cultural peculiarities all correct. To hear more evidence that you can use to be sure for yourself that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God, tune in to Anchored by Truth on Wave FM every Tuesday morning at 11.30. Or listen to previous episodes on your favorite podcast app. Faith in the Bible isn't about a leap in the dark. It's about walking in the light of reason and evidence. And Anchored by Truth is here to help you discover that light. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Every child of God can defeat the world, and our faith is what gives us this victory. No one can defeat the world without having faith in Jesus as the Son of God. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, Contemporary English Version No matter how much you know or what plans you make, you can't defeat the Lord. Even if your army has horses ready for battle, the Lord will always win. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, Contemporary English Version Good morning. I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. As we had announced in a previous episode, before the COVID-19 virus struck our nation and community, we wanted to do a series on Anchored by Truth to focus on one of the strongest lines of evidence for the Bible's inspiration, that of fulfilled prophecy. But, given the interruption to our lives that this virus has caused, we thought that it was more important to spend some time meditating on what the Bible says about dealing with tribulation that will inevitably be part of a life in a fallen creation. R.D., Maybe we should do a quick review of what we've covered so far in the series. Well, before we get to the review, I like the fact that you mentioned we live in a fallen creation. I think it's important to remember, just as a general reminder, whenever we think about things like the virus or difficulties and trials that come into our lives, that the Bible represents a consistent system of thought. It's a unified and continuing story, if you will. The Bible is one continuous narrative about creation, fall, and redemption. So the virus that's in our nation and in the world now, the one that we're dealing with, is sadly a graphic reminder that the effects of Adam's sin in the garden continue to afflict us today. You know, we tend to think of viruses and bacteria, for that matter, as dangerous and unnecessary. 
But we know that while certain categories of viruses and bacteria are definitely dangerous and can be fatal, generally speaking, both bacteria and viruses play beneficial roles in making our world livable. Can you amplify on that a little? Well, a little being a key phrase here. I'm not a biologist or a chemist, but I've read a little bit about this, and there's actually quite a bit of information on the topic of the beneficial role of viruses and bacteria on the Creation Ministries International website, which is creation.com. And we'll put a link to one of the general articles about that subject in the text notes that accompany the podcast version of this show. But just as a really brief summary... In contrast to the general idea that bacteria are harmful to living systems, bacteria are actually at the basis of our life support system. The bacteria is what causes soil to be fertile and what generates atmospheric gases in the world. Bacteria cleanse our water supply. They play a role in stabilizing the atmospheric nitrogen concentration in the air. They also play a role in regulating the acidity or alkalinity of the soil environment. It's a fair statement to say that bacteria generally ensure that our world is livable. And for reasons that are way too lengthy to go into today, bacteria need viruses to be able to adapt to the environment and to continue to do their essential work. Viruses aren't really living creatures. They're more like seeds or spores that carry genetic information from one host to another. But this role of carrying that genetic information is critical to bacteria and other living creatures. Most viruses actually live in their hosts in a benign or even helpful way. Most, but obviously not all. So the big point you're making is that the danger that certain viruses and bacteria now pose to other living creatures is a perversion of their original role. Like the rest of creation, they were originally totally benign. But Adam and Eve's sin didn't just affect them and their descendants. It affected all of creation. Precisely. The Apostle Paul makes this point explicitly clear in the 8th chapter of Romans. There, Paul says that creation is confused, and in fact it's groaning in pain like a woman about to give birth. When God told Adam and Eve that the wages of sin was death, God wasn't fooling. Adam's sin, which produced the fall, affected all of creation, including viruses and bacteria. I mean, I know that it's an alien thought in our supposedly enlightened culture to hearken back to the consequences of sin, but when you get back to the biblical basics, so much more of what we see around us today makes a lot of sense. Well, before we go too much further down this rabbit's hole, Let's listen to a dramatization of the climactic time in the garden when the first sin occurred. This is another excerpt from Crystal Sea Books' upcoming Genesis saga. This happens to be part three, called The Serpent's Poison. In the midst of the bright garden grew the forbidden tree. God had strictly instructed man, from that tree he may not eat. For the fruit of the forbidden tree held the knowledge of good and evil. And God had plainly told the man that to touch or taste would be lethal. 
God called the man Adam. And at first, Adam was alone. So God then made woman for man, crafting Eve from a rib bone. Adam now lived in true paradise. He lived in abundance and peace. Man had a companion to fill his heart, and no cares his joy to decrease. But then, one day came the snake, a tempter gliding among the leaves, hating the contentment he could not share, and the people who seemed so free. One day the serpent watched the woman as she passed the forbidden tree. The serpent hatched a plan most vile to destroy her with deceit. The serpent was crafty and cunning, twisted by malevolence. From the boundaries of heaven above, he earlier had been sent. The serpent was filled with wicked evil, consumed by fierce, fiery hate. Now came the chance to ruin God's child, with anger and malice most great. Ah, the woman. Ah, the man. See how in paradise they play, while I from heaven was cast out. But soon I will make them pay. The serpent slyly revealed himself and posed a lying query. So subtle his approach and choice of words, the woman was not wary. The serpent presented to her false choice. Then God's goodness denied. The woman, caught by silky snare, failed on God's word to rely. Like God you can be, the serpent foully intrigued. Taste the fruit, it cannot kill. The serpent more fully deceived. Eve stared at the fruits. So beautiful. To her eye and taste it appealed. So lovely. But her desire to be like God. I will be like God. Is what her choice revealed. See the tree. How it pleases the eye. Its fruit so delicious to taste. Take and eat. It should be yours. Do its pleasures quickly make haste. Her outstretched hand touched the fruit. Desire pulled it from the tree. This is perfect. Sin began. It flourished and grew. Deceit had planted the seed. Eve tasted the fruit, sweet at first. So sweet. Soon becoming quite sour. Sin fully blossomed as Adam ate too. 
rebellion now fully in flower. Oh, bitter ruin, how can it be? Like God, they sought to be wise. Now their ruin, all too clear, as they saw through opened eyes. Satan, the serpent, howled with glee, pleased by what he had wrought. God's beloved, destroyed by sin, the real goal Satan had sought. Man is fallen, his estate is ruined, for the man would not abide God's command. God made a creature in his own image, but was stolen from God's hand. In Adam, man fell, transgressed his mandate to refrain from touching the tree. Satan had sinned, planned their downfall, but Satan's triumph became his defeat. When God came, he cursed the snake. On his belly he would now go. Man too was cursed, but unlike Satan, God granted to man new hope. The woman's seed would crush the serpent, revealing God's better plan. A second Adam would come in time, who would fully obey God's command. Wow, that really does bring home the real tragedy that occurred that day in the garden. Eve was tempted by the devil, but the Bible says that it was her desire for godlike wisdom that made her taste the fruit. You know, it wouldn't seem that desire for wisdom itself was a bad thing. And you're right. In and of itself, the desire for wisdom is not a bad thing. But what made both Adam and Eve eating that particular fruit sinful was that God had prohibited them from eating from that specific tree, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's be very clear. Adam and Eve made a free choice to eat the fruit of a tree that God had put off limits. They thereby directly violated God's command. The sin arose because they clearly and knowingly violated a command that God had given to them. You know, now sometimes I've heard, I'm going to say slightly silly critics of the Bible, say that somehow this violation of God's command was a sort of fall upward. The critic's conclusion is sort of the idea that if Adam and Eve had not eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Adam and Eve would never have known the difference between good and evil. But this conclusion is not supported by the text. What do you mean? Well, let's just suppose that Adam and Eve had not chosen to disobey God, but had instead chosen to obey God. But Adam and Eve would still have obtained wisdom, and they would have obtained a knowledge of the difference between good and evil, but they would have obtained that knowledge from obedience, not from disobedience. The idea that Adam and Eve somehow became smarter or wiser through sin is completely false. 
If Adam and Eve had persisted in obedience, they would have gained wisdom, they would have understood the real difference between good and evil, but they would have understood it from the good side, from the positive side. And so they would have obtained wisdom that was untainted by pain, death, and rebellion. So, just like in a family with two children, where one rebels against their parent and one is obedient, the rebel has different experiences, but that doesn't make him or her any smarter or more clever than the obedient one. In fact, the obedient one may grow and mature faster and go further because their energy isn't being diverted into unproductive and unnecessary struggles though even the best among us, of course, always experience a fair share of struggle. So how does this tie to our main subject about how to deal with the difficult times like coping with the presence of this virus? Well, as we've been talking about during our first four episodes in this series, the key to dealing with any difficulty, the virus, financial troubles, health difficulties, family struggles, whatever, the key to dealing with any difficulty is to remember that in and of ourselves, we are not equipped to deal with tribulation. Now, that may seem like bad news, but it becomes good news when we recognize that God never intended for us to deal with tribulation by ourselves. Right. Jesus told his disciples in John 16:33 that in this world we would have tribulation or trouble, but that we could take heart because he had overcome the world. Exactly. So in this Victory Over the Virus series, we've been taking a close look at the scriptures that show us how Jesus has overcome the world. In our first episode in this Victory Over the Virus series, we saw that God promises in a number of different places in the Bible that he will never leave us or forsake us. Examples of where that promise is located is Deuteronomy 6.31 or Isaiah 49.15. God promises to always be with us no matter what we're going through. In our second episode, we saw that in addition to just guaranteeing us his presence, that he'll be with us, God also promises to give us what we need during trying times. And we focused in that episode on three super important qualities that we all need. Wisdom, for instance, take a look at Proverbs 9.10. Strength, listeners can check out Nehemiah 8.10. And contentment, which can be found in Philippians 4.12. Well, in our third episode, we took a look at the attributes of God, such as his immutability, his unchanging nature, that guarantee us that the promises that God made were intended just as much for us in our day and time as they were for the very first audience that ever heard those promises. And then in our last episode, we talked about the fact that God will often do amazing things for his people, such as provide them deliverance from trouble or supplying their needs, because doing so brings an increased recognition of God's glory. And listeners could look at Psalm 79.9 for an illustration of that principle. Also, just as a reminder for anyone who wasn't able to join us for these earlier episodes, they are all now available by podcast through all major podcast apps. Just look for Anchored by Truth, the Victory Over the Virus episodes. Absolutely. And posting these episodes as podcasts allows listeners to share them with other people. Listeners, again, as a reminder, should also know that we routinely post written script notes along with the podcast audio, so anyone who would like to review the Bible quotes and scripture references we use can just go and get the script notes rather than having to write things down as they are listening. Right. So where do you want to go today? Well, let's build on the start that we made earlier. 
Part of dealing with trials or tribulation is ensuring that we have the necessary context to make sense of all of this. And remember that part of that context, a big part of that context, is to remember that we do live in a fallen creation. If we don't remember the fact that we live in a fallen creation, it can be easy to drift off into thinking that somehow we brought this on ourselves or another old bromide, God is punishing for this or that sin. I've recently had a few people ask me whether I think that this virus is God's way of punishing America for its sin. Probably more than one person has wondered that. So what do you say? Well, I said that if God were aiming this virus at America, he missed, because reportedly this virus is present over 180 countries. So thinking that God aimed this virus at America would mean he hit over 179 other targets. And you think God has better aim than that? I don't think it. I know it. And none of these observations are intended to be a criticism of anybody. And in fact, there's only three big points that I want to draw out of all of this. Okay. What's number one? Well, number one is that the Bible is true. Everything that we see about this crisis, both the good and the bad, everything that we see is consistent with what the Bible tells us about creation and, frankly, about man. Greed, the love of money, undoubtedly played a role, a very unfortunate role, in the spread of the disease. But you've also seen groups motivated by their Christian values, like Samaritan's Purse, step out into danger to bring relief. There's nothing really in this unfolding crisis that is inconsistent with how the Bible describes the fallen nature of creation or the actions of man. Interesting. Then what's number two? Well, number two is that Jesus has promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that means that if Jesus doesn't put out the fire in our lives, he will stand with us in it. Jesus has already walked through the darkest valleys possible. So who would you want to be with when you're in your own dark valley? Well, I'd want to be with someone who has already walked there and who has come out the other side. Beyond just the fact that Jesus will not only be with us in our valley, he will equip us to go through that valley. He will equip us with what we need. But, and this is a really big and key but, he only equips us in the way that he promised that he would. In other words, when Nehemiah told the ancient Hebrews and us that the joy of the Lord is our strength, he was telling us that for us to be strong, we must look to the Lord. Paul reinforced this idea when he told the Philippians in 4.13 that he got his, Paul's, strength from Christ. Wisdom starts when we ensure that we have an appropriate appreciation of who the Lord is. The Lord will be with us and give us what we need, but we must do it the Lord's way. In Philippians 4.19, Paul said that he could do all things, but he did not say that he could do all things any way he wanted to. Paul said he could do all things through Christ. And that's a lesson that the entire Bible reinforces. The Lord cares deeply for us, but he cares so deeply for us that he only wants the best for us, and the best way is always his way. So the Lord will be with us and give us what we need, but we must look to him in his direction for how to acquire the things that we need. Wow. Some of those things aren't easy for people today to hear, but that doesn't mean they're not true. Okay, what's number three? The third thing I want everybody to remember is that even when we mess up, God doesn't just chunk us away and start over. Chunk us away? Really? Yeah, chunk. 
You know, toss, throw, heave. Anyway, that's what God doesn't do with us. When we mess up, which we all do, and I know I certainly do, most of the time, God starts over with us, trying to help us see that His way really is best. Remember Jonah. He wound up in the belly of the fish because he didn't want to go do what God was calling him to do, go to Nineveh and preach repentance. But despite his initial failure, God called on him again to do the same thing. And fortunately, this time Jonah did what God instructed. And the Bible tells us that Jonah's preaching to Nineveh resulted in one of the greatest revivals in history because the whole city repented. And this was all the more remarkable because the Ninevites were sworn enemies of Israel and had never worshipped the God of the Bible. God isn't, thankfully, the God of one and done. He's the God of the second, third, fourth, tenth, and sometimes I think the hundred and tenth chances. Thankfully, our God is a God of redemption, restoration, and reclamation, not dismissal and disillusionment. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that should be truly encouraging to all of us. As long as we are here, Jesus will help us to continue to grow in obedience to Him. The one thing that Jesus won't do, as long as we're sincere about wanting Jesus to help us, is Jesus will never abandon us. That is a truly comforting thought. As we mentioned last time, sometimes we might question why God would be inclined to listen to us at all. As David said in Psalm 8-4, What is man that you are mindful of him? The clear answer is that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. So God has made an incalculable sacrifice for us. So he won't give up on us. If we look to him, he will continue to sustain us even when no one on earth will. He's a father to his children, and nothing will ever change that. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, since so many of our friends and neighbors have lost jobs or pay because of the virus, let's pray for those who are finding that money is tight. But let's do so remembering God's promise that it is God who will supply all our needs. A Prayer When Money is Tight Merciful God and Ruler of Creation, We thank you that we can come into your presence at all times, but especially when we are in need. You are our refuge in times of trouble, and in those times it is the covering of your compassion and favor that we seek. Lord, you know that these are difficult times for us. As we look about us, we see tribulation on many sides, and financial pressures are particularly hard right now. If it were not for you, we would be quickly overwhelmed. We cling to you as the sure anchor in the storm, the one who cannot be moved and who will not allow your people to sink beneath chaos's waves. Lord, we believe in you, but help our unbelief. We need your instruction and direction, and we pray for it now. Help us to see ways that we can reduce our spending and live modestly. Grant us favor in the sight of those with whom we do business. Bring us to places where genuine bargains can be found, and bring us into contact with honest businesses where good value can be obtained at reasonable prices. Also, help us to be industrious at our work. Grant us work that is pleasing to you and that will enable us to provide for our family. 
Help us to take advantage of the opportunities that you bring before us. And if it be in your will, help us to increase our income by being more productive. Give us wisdom, though, so that we do not place a greater value on work and income than on our relationships with you and our family. Give us the strength to meet each challenge and direct each of our decisions. Help us to find the counselors and comforters that we need, counselors who can assist us in seeing things in our lives that we must change, and comforters to walk with us through the trials. We are so very grateful when we are surrounded by your people whose love and support is a reflection of Christ, and we pray that you would bring us to such people when they are lacking. We also pray that you would provide special blessings that we don't know how to pray for and could never expect. You are a big God, much bigger than we can comprehend. Please do for us that which we could never imagine, conceive, or even hope for. We remember that when Christ walked among us, he fed the multitudes by multiplying the little that was placed in his holy hands. Lord, we place our financial situation and indeed our lives in his hands today. In his name we pray and give you glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.